You're listening to the Wild Mind Podcast, Episode 7. changing academic industry and labor model herald institutional breakdown, punish courageous expression, and sustain the gulf between anointed experts and everyday people, a growing number of thinkers are embracing the world of possibilities rising from the ruins. My name is Caitlin Smith, and I've launched the Wild Mind podcast to share the stories of people on the leading edge of this exploration, as well as the Wild Mind Collective, a virtual community platform supporting thinkers and modes of engagement with ideas not contained by institutions. In each episode, you will learn how my guests tap their inner resources, critical acumen, and an unruly sense of inspiration to free their work from institutional parameters, engage with their chosen audiences, and speak in their own voices amid persistent pressure to the contrary. In this episode, I interview Dr. James Padiglione, now visiting assistant professor of religion at Swarthmore College and co-host of the Always Already podcast, a podcast that explores a range of theoretical traditions, including critical theory, as well as people and projects animated by such ideas. In this conversation, we discuss the inspiration for his podcast series, Epistemic Unruliness, how a deep connection with the ancestors lies at the core of his scholarly work, and how he counters scholarly misrecognition and resistance through this ancestral consciousness. Without further ado, James Padiglione. Hi, James. How are you? All right. How are you, Caitlin? I'm doing well. I would just love to dive right in to your story, James, if that's okay. Hey, sure. Um, I would love to just get a sense of where and how your passion for ideas began? I So that's a really great question. Um, and I guess in some way, you know, it began somewhere in childhood, I guess, because it, it's something that I always remember just being, you know, I was always curious about whatever answer I was always given. I always had another question. You know, I was one of those kids. I, my mom... <laughs> My mom, like my mom is a teacher. And so I, you know, she likes to say and take the credit for inspiring that initial curiosity, but that I was one of those kids who would always, you know, ask, the, well, why is this the way it is? And she'd give an answer. And then I would follow up with, but why is that? <laughs> you know, and it would just, ne- there was no end to that. Mm-hmm. And I guess from there, um, when I was about second grade or so, my parents bought an Encyclopedia Britannica set. Um, that dates me, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, People well. <laughs> book and, uh, you know, like glue uh, encyclopedias, you know, paper and glue encyclopedias anymore. But I had them <laughs> as a kid. And I, like that from, I think from there on, and it's almost like, I guess it's the equivalent of the internet in the early 90s. But like every question, every curiosity that I had ever had as a child now I had a whole set of encyclopedias in front of me. And so I just remember I was I was not a very like outgoing uh, social child in grade school. And like I spent hours reading through those encyclopedias for fun and watching documentaries as a kid on like the Weather Channel and the Discovery Channel when they were actually kind of academic or, you know, factual <laughs> in what they were presenting. Um, and so then. That kind of initial curiosity, I think, I always had this understanding that there was 
something more to be learned or that there was another perspective on things. I think mm-hmm. having family, I was born in Puerto Rico and my family is like multiracial, multi-ethnic in lots of different ways. And there are a few different languages that sometimes float around in our family. And there was just always this understanding that there are other ways to do things or other, you know, other peoples out here in the world who understand the world in different ways and living in that kind of a intersection never closed down for me that I knew it all or that I could be wrong and that it's okay to learn something new, you know? Mm. Wow. Um, I resonate with so much of what you just shared. I also um, come from a multiracial family and I think share the curiosity that you were describing, I think as a, as a child also. Um, so that's really interesting to hear that that's, that's part of um, your origin story also. Yeah, I definitely, it's funny, even maybe more so now, but like I come across like things in, like I was lecturing today um, on Virginia slavery in the 17th and 18th centuries. And it's like some of those things are definitely things that I learned in grade school on doing self-study. Wow. And I don't honestly remember, you know, like, of course I've read things in other books and other studies, but in a lot of ways, my my initial childhood curiosities and whatnot continue to inform my vocation now. Wow, I find that very striking. It sounds like you've you've had this lifelong connection and passion for ideas and just a deep well of curiosity and a desire to continue exploring. And I'm wondering what it's been like for you to sort of channel that underlying orientation or, or those that way of being into academia and an academic career. So that's been some finesse. And I suppose I'm still figuring that out, but it's, it's, <laughs> I'm getting better <laughs> at it than, uh, all, you know, that I always have been. Uh, but I, I think one thing, um, well, let me back up, I suppose. It's like, so my, my bachelor's degree is in history with a minor in music. Um, and those two, for me, those two things seem pretty complimentary and like, it always made sense in my head. But I remember um, meeting with the music department uh, at my undergrad institution and them wondering about like the, the compatibility of those two ideas or like those two field as both being like very rigorous and like not related, which to me it always, I was interested in the history of slavery music, basically, you know, the music of the plantations. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was like music was always a historical question. And so I, I, you know, the creativity of having lots of curiosities uh, as an undergrad, I had to kind of, and I didn't have any intentions at this time of pursuing a graduate degree. And so, you know, just in that, on that level, uh, there was definitely some kind of like work or whatnot, you know, that needed to be done in order to, to, to like make that particular track that I was trying to carve out. The one that just like resonated with my head, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and, and so then in grad school, my program is an American studies program, which by, its, okay. by design, it's interdisciplinary and lends itself in both good and bad ways to people who are very like curious in a 
buffet style, you know, <laughs> of everything. They're interested in a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And and so at first, uh, you know, that kind of program appealed to me because it was I was able to combine interests in political economy and material culture. And I'm thinking like musical instruments, we'll say or like the creation of musical instruments in a plantation environment. Like there are so many ways, things you can talk about and do with that. And I found the American Studies program just opened up all different methods uh, and avenues of inspection into the same archive for me. Wow. But something I definitely had to adjust for and, you know, at times it made it harder and struggled, uh, you know, with like working it out is kind of finding a way to be legible because the academy needs to hire people and know who people are mm-hmm. in like a, a little blurb that can fit on a bio on <laughs> a page right on a, or, or, or some kind of like 30 second elevator pitch about like what's your dissertation or what's your research field and and what you know what classes are you qualified to teach and whatnot and so mm-hmm. you have to you know, I have all these side interests and things that appeal to me, but, you know, you have to find, you have to find some kind of coherence that allows for you to look like you're an expert in one or two specific things and that people can, can know that you are competent in those fields, right? And so mm-hmm. like that, then the chore that I'm still working on in being able to create so for, in my case, you know, it's been trying to create multiple faces or like I, I want to. So my research currently and I know you will talk about this a little bit more, but just to throw out generally, I deal with religious and ritual cultural production of the African diaspora, looking at, we'll say, the forms of culture and the patterns of culture that were on plantations and how they've evolved in time. Uh, but I'm most interested in the colonial period and specifically Catholicism in Afro-Latino context. And so developing that little focus, <laughs> while at the same time keeping up with all these other ideas, um, I've had to learn how to kind of, like the the sprawling curiosity of an intellectual uh, still within the academy, you know, you have to meet timelines and schedules. And so you, there's a tension between these two things. Yeah. I resonate with the tension that you were describing between expertise and and also wanting to honor the multitudes that you contain as a person and as a thinker. Where do you find the balance between those things, I think, is a challenge for a lot of people and one that I've definitely grappled with also. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, the Academy is a very, very old institution, you know, maybe perhaps, you know, and I'm saying the Academy, the specific like European Academy, because of course, you know, there was the University of Timbuktu and I believe Mali or Sangai at the time, but we don't think about that academy as mm-hmm. being the same academy that like is the genealogy of the one we're in today, right? And so yeah. our present academy is is so old and 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 like has its own way. And what for whatever you know, this is not an argument in favor of tradition or against it, but mm-hmm. old traditions 
take on these inertia, you know, that. And so for especially people of color who want to move into, you know, that academic structure, all that inertia is the current, right? And like mm-hmm. we can swim with it and a lot of us are trying to swim against it or like oh, stay in place. And and it's that is, there's a lot of tension and a lot of struggle there. But I think there's also a lot of generativity in that struggle. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I agree. On that subject, I would love to ask you a few questions about the Always Already podcast and how that fits into your body of work. Um, So my understanding is that you joined the Always Already podcast as a co-host after it had been started by a colleague of yours. Can you talk a bit about the vision for the Always Already podcast and what inspired you to join the team? Sure. I'm smiling. Uh, from here. It's funny. I, I really like my, my co-hosts. Apparently you mentioned the podcast and I'm happy to think about them and talk about them. Oh. Um, so Rachel Brown and John McMahon are the two co-hosts who we give the credit to for being the like brains behind the operation or whatnot. They are, well, were both um, PhD students at the Graduate Center at CUNY. Um, and they were in political theory and they were working on their comprehensive exams together. And I guess this is 2014, 2013, 2014. And in studying for their comprehensive exams together, (laughs) they (laughs) like talking about these readings in there and what has become our own, you know, irreverent and like rigorous, but we're going to like still be millennials and like kind of laugh and you know poke fun at it and whatnot and and so that they figured that they were like having so much fun that they should record their conversations and make it a podcast right and 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 use that podcast as an extension of graduate school seminar discussions without the kind of hubris that often is displayed in a graduate seminar where it's not so much people and I don't want to say this across the board, right, of course, but mm-hmm. I think if anyone's been in a graduate seminar, you know that there's a whole lot of posturing that takes <laughs> and very little yes. actual, like, engagement with the ideas in a kind of uh, intramural, you know, back and forth uh, for discovery of truth. It's, mm-hmm. it's usually, mm-hmm. like, demonstrating what you know from other readings or just kind of, you know. Yeah. And that's, I get it. That's, like, the whole the rat race of grad school puts people in these awkward positions. But the thing about um, the discussions that the, the AAP, um, you know, the AA puts together is that we're basically trying to have the same type of conversation that you would have about a reading in a seminar, but to do it without the structure and the hierarchy. And let me say the hierarchical structure, because we are still structured in our conversations, but it's just not a hierarchical one. And there's, it's a lot more how do those readings work for praxis mm-hmm. uh, and not just reading them because they're canon, you know? And, like, how do we flip the canon on its head and extract a critical, intersectional, you know, race conscious and gender and sexual and class um, awarenesses around those same dry texts? And so I had 
I'm trying to think now. I don't even remember exactly. I think Always Already had been profiled on like a website. It's like criticaltheory.com or there's a website about critical theory that had um, kind of thrown out like there's a new podcast, a new critical theory podcast that you should check out. And I was in, uh, I remember this semester was my first first semester of my second year of grad school in 2014-15 where I was, or 2013-14, um, and I was in a anthropology theory class, Anthro 600, which is just social cultural theory. So it's the whole canon from uh, Rousseau and Hobbes and Locke, and you work your way down, you know, to Marx, Durkheim, <laughs> and Weber, and then I gone into your post-colonial theories, like Fanon gets on that list. He's part of the anthro canon. And then you get to Foucault and, you know, and like, <laughs> and that whole thing. And then I was also in that same semester, I was in uh, critical race theory. So we were doing a lot of theory readings. And, and then I was in the history of sexuality course, which again was heavy on theory. Mm-hmm. And so the podcast was that, like, they were dealing with some texts, and I can't remember exactly which ones now, but either specific texts that I was coming across in those classes or texts that were in conversation with texts that I was reading in class. And I began listening because it was adding to my understanding of those uh, and critical theory and like the, the language of critical theory can be bulky and, Mm -hmm. you know, you just have to learn the kind of self-reflective conversations that are taking place between theorists. And so it just takes some time to sit with and get used to. And it, and I found always already, was helping me understand my readings in class because I was hearing it for double the amount of time, you know, than just what the seminar offered. And I was hearing it from people who were not posturing or trying to, you know, just demonstrate that they could play checkmate to someone else, but that they were actually <laughs> friends who wanted to talk about these ideas, right? Wow. And so yeah. I messaged them. Uh, basically suggesting a reading, I think, because like the Afro-pessimism and Black optimism theories, uh, Fred Moten and Jared Sexton, Frank B. Wilderson III, there's a whole like set. And this has become really uh, debated and talked about a lot, I'd say, over the last four or five years in Black studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, those theories and, you know, they go all the way back in their genealogies to Fanon and to Sylvia Winters and to um, Hortense Spillers and others. Mm -hmm. But I would say from the late 90s, you had Saidiya Hartman and then a a lot of people working after Saidiya Hartman um, in in those areas. And so I messaged them and was like, hey, you know, just FYI, this would be a really interesting, you know, little theoretical world for you all to think about talking about and, and, and told them about my work and blah and whatnot. And to my surprise, they emailed me back inviting me to come on and talk about my own work and eventually to you know record an episode in discussion about some of those black theorists, which we ended up doing. And so my very first appearance on the podcast was talking about my own research and my own dissertation and how I was drawing on those theories. And then my second, um, which was like the official appearance as a host, not a interviewee was an episode that we filmed in July or recorded in July, 2015 on Afro pessimism and black optimism. And 
that from there on, I suppose uh, the rest is history. I'm really curious about your epistemic unruliness series and what your vision for that has been. One of those ideas when I came on board was going to be that I had that segment and, and we the idea of its name being epistemic unruliness is derived from Walter Mignolo's work on epistemic disobedience, which oh, is actually I like another that. podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, and right. And so he, he's, and he writes, and he's a Latin Americanist and he's talking about basically the location of European knowledge is that right. Like enlightenment philo- philosophy and theory is located in Europe and it's looking out on the, the colonies, wherever that might be to a European metropole and is deriving its theories about the human, the universal human theories looking to all these colonized people as the like exceptions. And so for for Mignolo, epistemic disobedience is any practice that just is it's it's disobedient within that like tradition of knowledge, right? That like you're you're not following the epistemology or what Foucault would refer to as the epistem of your time, which is the kind of conglomeration of power and institutions that make for truth. I'm sure there's a better way I could word that. Let's see. Like truth emerges through power relations that are institutionalized, right? And like an institutional definition of a truth can persist and propagate itself. But that's through mechanisms of power and not so much because that truth is universal and eternal or something. And so Mignolo's idea of epistemic disobedience relates a lot to alternative authoritative bases for knowledge and sources of knowledge and then practicing them being disobedient. Like if the, if the epistem says that we'll just go vote again, you know, is (laughs) the way to do the deal with it, right. To be epistemically disobedient is doing something else and saying, no, if politics only allows for us to engage it through legal protest with the permit in the street or at the box, then like we need to be epistemically disobedient and think of another way to, you know, attack that problem, say. So epistemic unruliness, because we didn't want to, we didn't want to think that we were quite as disobedient as what true disobedience would call for, where maybe, you know, we wanted to make room for the fact that we're maybe not the perfect examples of this. So we figured we're unruly more than disobedient. Uh, And and again, it's just, we don't want to put ourselves up as the example. So if we called that show epistemic disobedience, then it would almost imply that the people that we're bringing on and the things that we're doing, like this is how to be epistemically disobedient. Mm -hmm. Maybe Mm -hmm. it is, but we're trying to be humble and just like the true disobedience won't be legible. Right. So, uh, Epistemic unruliness is trying to bring on activists and scholars and activist scholars and artists and people who would use all three of those labels to describe themselves to talk about how they practice being disobedient and unruly and everything in between. I had a professor who came on who talked about um, her work, uh, like in her book, Renee Kramer is her name, Dr. Renee Kramer, 
But then she started talking about how she uses meditative and contemplative practices in her class in order to have students think about intersectionality and like how they can approach being different from others and meditating on how radically different you are, say, from a queer, non-binary trans woman, then like if you can meditate and uh, arrive at that knowledge of difference, but like using meditation as the methodology as opposed to formalized learning or something, right? And that is allowing oh. for an inner voice to speak to you in a different way. So that was really fascinating. I've had people come on there, like I mentioned Kai Green, who was yeah. talking about transformative justice and talking about his work, not only his academic work, but his work with the Black Youth Project 100. Um, we've had like performance artists come on who have used their performance art to either stage like light shows where like they're beaming messages on buildings, you know, like just very visible um, spectacle type things. Other performance artists who have websites and like mock the kind of neoliberal uh, self-help type things that go around the internet. But so that has become its own interesting archive of like diverse practices and ways to engage uh, scholarship and activism on and off campus. And I think uh, epistemic unruliness has done a lot to allow for us to also, you know, profile other young scholars and like not again, moving away from the canon and the people we talk about all the time towards just like, you know, everyday people who we don't know are out here in the struggle. Wow. I really enjoyed seeing how your your vision for the series has translated into a number of really rich and interesting conversations. In listening to your story, I'm just thinking about the courage that it must have taken to have these public conversations about the texts, minus the posturing and minus the armor against criticism. I'm wondering uh, what your experience has been like with that. What has it been like to engage in these conversations without those elements in play? I I think, the, like especially the part that you mentioned about the armor, right, and the way that we would, without even maybe knowing that we were doing it, enter into a... A, a formal, a more formal setting, right? And, and embrace yourself in those kinds of conversations. And and I think you're you're picking up on something that is important. That like the conversation is not. It, it's we are at ease with each other, and so we're not afraid to say things that need to be unpackaged more, right? Or we're not mm -hmm. afraid to say things that other people might disagree with. We really have worked hard, I think, to create in an affective environment that allows mm -hmm. for a kind of generativity and not even an exchange of ideas as much because, you know, an exchange of ideas is a kind of back and forth. But, like, there's a third thing that emerges in those conversations, and it's like a combination of everybody chipping in. But we, we've tried to focus on, again, not, it's not just that the, the ideas can exchange but thinking about the exchange of ideas limits the kind of exchange to language. And we're trying to exchange affect as well. And so sometimes it's not always going to be what we say. 
It's how we say it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the way that we've responded to the election and presidency of Donald Trump has been this kind of combination of thinking about that these ideas are not, they're not just ideas, but they come along with a whole suite of affects and other material assemblages. Mm-hmm. And that the holistic approach to justice is going to be what's necessary moving forward. Wow. And when you say the holistic approach, do you mean kind of a combination of attention to ideas and action? Is that sort of what you mean by that? Yeah, I would say like, so the attention to the ideas, attentions to actions, all actions, right, whether they be the most radical in this moment, whether it's a kind of, as my co-host John says, you know, like your soccer moms who are putting... I don't know, a safety pin on their jacket, right? Like, oh, yeah. Actions are necessary in some way if, like, resist is the imperative of the moment. Mm. But more holistically, right? Like, we have to rethink some of our political premises or all of them because it's not enough to just. I'm going to put this in my words now and the way I've been thinking about some of this and I, you know, my co-host can agree and not agree or whatnot, (laughs) but we, to me, when we, if we were just going to say like, resist, 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 right. And push that kind of like uh, fill in the blanks with how you resist. But like, if we just start talking about resisting, we're already assuming that we know what to resist against. Mm -hmm. We're never explaining what needs to be resisted against if we just start at the point of resistance and maybe it's apparent what we ought to resist against. Right. And maybe, maybe that's the case, but I think, you know, you can be pushing up a hill, you know, for hours and hours and hours like Sisyphus with that rock. And perhaps Mm -hmm. there's another way to roll it around the hill or something, in which case it's not that you need to resist the gravity of the hill further, but perhaps you should just kind of, reframe the question or re, you know move to a different framing of the the context and then maybe you'll see that there's a whole whole open avenues of other possibilities to you right that and so because some of the I think some of the, some of the readings that some of the texts that we've approached like I'm, I'm thinking recently we just did an episode reading some of the work of Karen Barat People might think of her as kind of mystic or kind of, you know, because she's she she argues for gender and sexual um, identity to be understood through quantum physics and quantum dynamics, right? And that's wow. a little, it's out there, right? It may be <laughs> uh, we've done uh, Daniel Coluciello Barber, I think was his name. He has a book on um, Deleuze and Guattari and their definition of God. And that was like very mystical. He was talking about time crystals and thinking about a politics that can emerge out of like a a whole new material concept, uh, like a spiritually infused materiality. And again, that's a kind of book that it was dense to read through and whatnot. But, you know, there's there was a glimmer there's a glimmer of 
And I know you have a question for me about cosmology coming up. So I'm, I'm pun, I mean, this is the little, <laughs> use it as a segue, okay. but like that the cosmologies behind our politics need to be interrogated just as much as any practical actions we take. But then at the same time, right, it can be a practical action to teach people, right? Pedagogy can be a radical act if I'm teaching you that the way the world relates to itself is vastly different from the epistemology that you've been socialized to believe. Right? And like, as much as that might not seem like it is the most critical space relative to marching in the streets or something, mm -hmm. uh, holistically, all of those things are necessary. And we're going to have to chip away at not only what's in front of our face, but the the kind of structures of thinking that allow for what's happening to continue to happen. Both of those things at the same time have to be addressed. And that's, that's a lot of work. So I think we're not perfect at the podcast, but thinking about how to put into operation whole new ways of conceiving of the world, um, we do as good as anyone can, perhaps, as a podcast. Mm -hmm. In hearing you talk about this desire to reevaluate the uh, the mandate to resist in like reductive and prescribed ways, I'm thinking of the work of Kevin Quashie. He wrote a book called The Sovereignty of Quiet, Beyond Resistance in Black Culture. He just talks about how a black figure is sort of identified always already <laughs> with <laughs> resistance um, in, in a manner that can often obscure the other or many other dimensions of one's being that are really crucial and that are in many ways prior to social existence in the social world. Right. And I, 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 that resonates with your, your explanation of that book definitely resonates um, with some of the things that I've been thinking about uh, just in my own, my own work and and how do, like, I, you know, a lot of talk about self-care is, you know, thrown around these days. And yet, though, what does that actually mean? Mm -hmm. um, I know of some people that I, that I count, I, I count and consider amongst my, like, tribe, if you will, who, who have moved away almost from thinking about political resistance and they're thinking about spiritual healing. And that might sound like they're kind of like turning their eye away <clears throat> from politics. But again, I think this speaks to the holism of the problem mm -hmm. um, that their very active and very critical um, political engagement is a, it, it's being done through a modality of healing rather than resisting because perhaps right it speaks to the kind of sovereignty of quiet and that if we are always you know resisting 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 and some of this is just your, like your basic post-structural theory and like language or something mm -hmm. but like black is always set in in contradistinction to white night is always set in contradistinction today and these binaries these diodes, if you want to think of them that way, or however, um, it's almost in a kind of dialectic understanding of things. You can't know the one without the other, and mm -hmm. and we have so you know resistance is 
a strategy of a dialectic approach to the world. Because if, if it's the thesis in front of you is white supremacy, then the antithesis of that would be resisting against it or, you know, black indomitability or something, right? And then like you're locked into that mode where you're always squared off against whiteness. Um, but that, and I'm not saying that that's not important or that it's somehow, it definitely would be a privileged argument if I was saying like, take time to meditate, right? I'm not saying very literally go meditate and forget about the troubles of the world. <laughs> what I'm saying is that <laughs> you, there is a certain level of the self and even if that self is perhaps open always to the world, but there are, let's see, how do I want to phrase this exactly? You, you can approach these problems and I really, it just must boil down to how you frame it. Cause I'm trying to think if there's like a material trace of this somewhere, but like you were saying, there's something other than just resistance in you, in us, in mm. anyone. And that if we could somehow like plug in to those other modalities of the self, then perhaps we might be able to find other alternatives to the problem before us. And again, I'm trying to be as, as clear as possible that I'm not encouraging people to ignore mm -hmm. the world, but yeah. You have to see it from a different perspective. If that means metaphorically taking a hike for a day so you can look at the valley from on top of a summit and see it for itself from up above, or if that means metaphorically, you know, flipping the flipping something upside down and looking at it from upside down. I'm not saying that the problem isn't there, but I'm saying I guarantee you that. 360 degrees in a sphere of the problem, there's a crack in it somewhere. Mm -hmm. And finding that crack um, is the task. And, and, and assuming that the crack is always located exactly where it seems most apparent is necessary as the place to stage resistance, I don't know if that's always the case. And I guess this is just my own kind of personal like Gnosticism about these things. Mm -hmm. uh, but if 90% of the crowd is marching to the left, thinking that that's where the seat of power lies, then it probably is to the right <laughs> and, and, it's a, and it's above them and it's below them and it's everywhere else. Cause it's, it's never, it's never exactly where you think it's located. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can't support that in any empirical sense. That's just my, the way I approach the world is through, I guess, a kind of veil of Gnosticism and power as a Gnostic device in that it's going to shroud itself in its own dynamics. And that I'm trying to discover this like Gnostic truth of the, the logic of power and the logic of, of hierarchy and whatnot, um, that it's like a shell game. And it's not going to be so apparent. I, I think I'm drawing through readings and just plain old mysticism and Gnosticism, but then also some of these black studies approaches that are coming out of the Afro-pessimist and black optimist schools where 
I mean, some like Fred Moten in particular is a scholar who he has an article called uh, "Blackness and Nothingness," or um, I think "Blackness and Nothingness: Mysticism in the Flesh." Uh, and, and it's it it just talks about this idea that like whatever it is um, that puts blackness and whiteness in a kind of fisticuffs against each other in the history of the West, that there's some excessive something to blackness that whether it's an ancestral memory, it's a spiritual connection, it's, you know, it, it, it's something else. But his argument is that plenty of enslaved people who were born enslaved knew exactly what freedom was, even though they had never lived one moment of their life experiencing freedom. Mm. Uh, and that the argument then is that the knowledge of freedom comes from some other place, some spiritual place that we might have before we're even born. And he, he makes, he invokes the idea of um, anamnesis, uh, not amnesia, but anamnesis, or I believe I'm saying that right, anamnesis is an old platonic idea about like, remembering things from before you were born, right? Wow. And, and yeah, anamnesis. Uh, it, it's like remembering your soul knowledge from your previous life, right? And, and that was in Greek Platonic philosophy. Of course, that idea has dropped out from like modern understandings of knowledge acquisition that has to come from learning or from some, you know, a kind of, Kantian understanding of categories and experience. But I really love that Fred Moten went all the way back to Plato to find a word to understand something that we would just say is like soul memory or mm -hmm. you know, waking up to your past life if you want to be new age about it. Mm -hmm. But that it to say that all knowledge comes through learning of the category in like a formal setting or by experiencing it yourself in life that really does shut down a whole lot of intuition and a whole lot of sense, especially of colonized peoples of color and Africans and blacks, especially, right? It just shuts mm -hmm. down all our ways of knowing if you say that there is no knowledge that doesn't come from direct learning or direct experience. Where is the place of revelation mm -hmm. and soul intuition? Um, so I, I really appreciate some of those black studies theories that are trying to contend with the very real material problems of race, but do it in this way. Mm -hmm. Wow. I, I find what you said to be so powerful. I would love to talk more about this subject. Part of what I hear you saying is that there are these other epistemologies, other ways of knowing that Fred Moten's work kind of taps into and surfaces for us. And I'm really curious about what it's been like for you to sort of have this orientation within academic space? So it's it's interesting because I feel like, on the one hand, let me, so I'll say it this way. Uh, my dissertation is about a mystic 17th century Afro-Peruvian friar um, named Martin de Porres or Martin de Porres. But so I immediately saw a very like direct mirroring between this very historical figure who 
reportedly would go into trances and experience ecstasies. And then the, and let me just say, Martin's mother was an African slave who had been freed prior to his birth. So he was born free, but he ministered. He was also an apprentice, um, herbal healer and medicine man. And, And so he devoted his ministry to injured Africans, right? And so he's surrounded by slavery. And in the middle of dealing with all of the physical injuries and like the the, the pain of seeing all that and, and, and being on the front lines in the hospice and the infirmary, in the middle of all that though, he, he carves out this devotional practice where he achieves ecstasy and he achieves, you know, not transcendence because he never leaves his body, right? Like you, you're not you're not transcending when you're in ecstasy. You're literally still in your very body, and it's a bodily experience. You cannot achieve ecstasy if you're not imbo- embodied first. And so, wow. If I were just trying to scrub that story, some of this would be coming out already, right? Some some of this understanding of like mystic practices as they could relate to a colonized, racialized um, being. Uh, But so flipping that though, to picking up the Moten type language, and I would say Christina Sharp recently, her book um, In the Wake is like, uh, what do I want to say about this book? It was (laughs) like chicken soup for the black soul, I'll say. That, that series of books or something, but like her book was just, it talks about, so in the wake, the wake, she uses this understanding of wake in multiple registers, whether mm-hmm. it's the wake of a ship. So think of the slave ships, you know, that mm-hmm. brought Africans across the middle passage. We're in that wake, the wake in a sense of a, a, a dead body and like the family and friends gathering around the dead person before the funeral, that's awake. Um, but then also the sense of consciousness and like being woke, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that kind of wakefulness. And if we think of all those together, you get this consciousness, awareness of the death caused by slavery that we are still living in the wake of right Mm -hmm. and and that book takes those moten ideas and combines it though with a meditation on death that is that one part you know at once it's academic but it's also deeply spiritual and deeply poetic those kinds of scholars have made so much room for someone like myself to come behind Mm -hmm with you know dragging the the historical archive of this 17th century afro-peruvian with me and now i can say things about mysticism and ecstasy that are like perfectly you know citable within the black studies canon uh, but that wouldn't have been the case say 20 years ago 10 years ago and so i think black studies has done an incredible job to follow, I suppose, its tradition. You know, if you go all the way back to Du Bois and Souls of Black Folk, where every chapter opens with a spiritual Mm -hmm. and, you know, a kind of meditation before he gets into the, like, the empirical data that he's trying to prove, right? And it's Mm -hmm. like that, that double valence 
uh, where the you know black soul and soulfulness being part of our method of doing our work, um, I can speak to and with and within black studies very openly in the way that we're doing right now. I don't know if I, and perhaps religious studies too. I, I should say that because I, I participate in religious studies conversations and conferences and things. And I think religious studies makes room for these kinds of conversations too. Like the critical, a critical theory focus or a critical understanding of ecstasy. But I think black studies brings it all around to the crisis of blackness is always a historical one. It's always one happening in the streets right now. It never can move into a fully abstract theoretical conversation because black life lives and black death lives right in the streets. And, and so you can only rhapsodize so much. And, and I think black people have always rhapsodized about their sufferings. And again, I think uh, healing as a truly radical transformative politic, and I'm quoting and borrowing from Kai Green, who's a professor of gender, sexuality, women's studies, um, and I believe Africana or both. He's at Williams, and I interviewed him on our podcast, and he was speaking about transformative justice. But putting an emphasis on the trans part in transformative justice, and that it what would truly, truly transformative justice looks like would look like it would not just be a, you know, like reparations or something, right? Like, I mean, transformative justice would be healing the wounds of whiteness and blackness for black and white people and everybody in between. And that I'm not here centering white people. Yeah. And I know people are listening like, no, we don't got time for that no more. <laughs> I really do. I really do. I hear it and I, I, I sense the frustration when Heather Heyer, a white woman, it, you know, loses her life in Charlottesville protesting against Confederates and Nazis. Then I see a bunch of my black folk that I love struggling with figuring out how to mourn her without putting her as the front face victim in this struggle. Mm -hmm. And it's those kinds of dilemmas that black people are constantly thinking through, right, in these kinds of issues of how do we attend to our pain and suffering and attend to it all. So when I make a statement and I'm, you know, bringing Kai into this now too and say, like, well, we need transformative justice that heals us all. It kind of makes it seem like our pain and suffering is on equal footing with theirs. And it's not. But in some wider, again, climbing to the top of the mountain to look at the entire valley, none of this is going to resolve itself unless something truly transformative takes place on both sides of the color line. Because last I checked, and that is changing, but white people as a demographic block, like they're getting smaller, but they're not going away. And unless we're going to actually advocate for the eradication of certain peoples, mm -hmm. then we need to start at least keeping in mind the end goal game, if there's ever going to be an end game, Mm -hmm. that there has to be some kind of resolution at the end of all this. Otherwise, we're going to always have white people and black people or whatever we end up calling their descendants, mm -hmm. tracing mm -hmm. their heritages back to this detente, right? Or this standoff. I, I 
again, in the immediate, there are so many the 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 strivings and sufferings of our people uh, are definitely what rank in my in my mind but if i'm thinking in a kind of 1000 year sweep or almost a kind of messianic historian type sweep mm-hmm. to a walter benjamin type approach to history which as a side this was one of my favorite absolute episodes of the always already podcast before i became a co-host was oh. their their breakdown of walter benjamin's uh, theses of the philosophy of history in which he explains how the messianic historian is going to spread the hope of you know like liberation in the past and kind of work to bring the dead back to life because only when the dead come back to life will we have the kind of completion of everyone's history not just the history of the victors who get to tell the story at the end but the history of everyone and so like that kind of, wow. again, there's a, there's a mystic uh, approach to historical methodology in what yeah. he's doing. And, and so drawing on that kind of inspiration, right? Like this, we are, I am trying to fan those messianic flames. And I think black studies, there's a lot of that approach to the urgency of the time. Um, and the, the messianic hope is that everything is healed and restored at the end. And, and and so I'm not centering immediate individual white people, mm-hmm. but I am centering this notion that like an, ecolo- an ecology of persons on the globe is going to be one in which the so-called black peoples, the so-called white peoples, and the so-called everyone else are going to either have to learn how to live together in some kind of diverse harmony. We're all going to have to somehow (laughs) intermix and interbreed and make sure that all of the genetic diversity that comes from that is somehow negated so we all look exactly literally the same. So there is no way to say black or white or anything, which is just completely impossible. So it's not even (laughs) on that Or the violent, the violent one that no one wants to talk about, and I would never say as a actionable item, but like mm-hmm. we're gonna have to see some whole people groups wiped off the earth, right? Like that's the other extreme. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm putting myself in the camp of I want truly unimaginable, unthinkable messianic transformation because that's where I can put my hope. Wow, that's incredibly powerful. I know that you've written a bit about Yoruba cosmology. In particular, I read your blog article, Cosmological Queerness Across the Yoruba Diaspora. And I'm really curious about whether you think that that cosmology could be a useful resource in this process of uh, transformation and kind of opening to these new possibilities from within? I Yes, I do. The Yoruba view sickness and disease and social trouble as all being manifestations of the same holistic problem, whatever it might be. And that if someone is having 
some kind of a, a disruption in balance, we'll say, and whether that's individual, whether it's social, whether it's in a relationship, whether it would be a, a society is out of balance, the proper, like, say, course of action, the diagnostics that one would follow would be to consult the Ifa divination system mm-hmm. and to find out what needs to be done to restore you spiritually and materially and socially and like even psychologically, if you want to use that instead of, you know, a spiritual understanding. But the Yoruba would also think that your psychology is composed of ancestors and, you know, that they would call egungun, um, dead spirits, and then orishas who are avatars, basically, for forces of nature. But those forces of nature also have manifestations within your personhood. And the ancestral focus is important. The agungun are very important. And knowing almost the, the kind of rightness of your ethics or your moral rightness, uh, a moral high ground uh, of excellence because I'm honorable in the eyes of my ancestors, um, that may not seem like it is the most crucial element of a like workable politics today, mm. but it is it is mighty to have people feel as if the things they're doing are part of a tradition uh, that has permanence versus mm-hmm. being out here like orphans in the world or something. Mm-hmm. So the Yoruba cosmology is, and the Yoruba cosmology has had such an influence across the diaspora that a lot of us are already living these Yoruba ethics in our black social spaces without Mm -hmm. them being identified as such. But the Yoruba were taken everywhere um, during slavery. And so you find them and their cultural resonances everywhere, but especially in Cuba and Brazil and across the United States with um, folk tales like Br'er Rabbit and these kinds of things. Like it's all, all of that relates back that reminds me of the, is it the signifying monkey? Yes. Yeah. Henry Louis Gates Jr. has done this kind of work. Um, of He identifies Eshu Elegba, who's a composite Orisha, but it, within the Yoruba, specifically Eleg, Elegbara or Elegwa um, or Legba, um, as he's called in different parts of the diaspora, is for Henry Louis Gates, the signal trope of all tropes in the black diaspora as far as storytelling as far as interpreting the world as far as understanding that truth has multiple layers and truth has multiple vantage points and no one has a commodity on it um so indeterminacy and wordplay and signifying games that black folks do, you know, saying two things at once because my vocal tone allows me to add meaning to the words. All of Mm. those are understandings that derive from uh, not specifically Yoruba culture, but West and Central African cultures generally, and the Yoruba as a good test case because we can document their effects so strongly. But it has definitely worked its way in already to the kinds of life-sustaining practices and the power plays uh, that 
Africans have always had to engage and deploy in order to survive. Mm -hmm. I was very moved by what you were saying a moment ago about the importance of feeling that we are part of a tradition and uh, not orphans in the world, I think is how you put it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about um, who or what are some of your greatest inspirations as you're doing your work? Uh, So I I would say some of the the biggest inspirations to me are probably people that I've come across in the archives doing research. Um, so I, I know that you were you had pointed out Jose Antonio Aponte uh-huh. as someone that uh, is on my Twitter. I say that I'm an Avenger of him <laughs> and it's on my Instagram or my Instagram handles Aponte's ghost. So is my Skype one right here. Um, uh, so, like, Jose Antonio Ponte was a, a free black Cuban who was put to death by the Cuban government in 1812 because they thought that he was the leader of a rebellion plot. Um, and his story, like, there's so much more I could say about him, but I, we won't turn this into the Aponte hour. Uh, <laughs> but when I went to type, I was writing and working on him, and when I went to type out the paragraph that described the day that his trial ended and that he was actually executed, I had a very visceral response, shaking and like on the verge of tears. And it was surprising to me because I knew what I was going to write the entire time I was planning, you know, planning and working on that research. And it was at the end of the paper that I go to write about his death. And then I had this reaction or this engagement with it as if I was literally experiencing it there as a witness. And it was something that I wasn't expecting. And so maybe there's a, you know, I know Fred Moten again talks about like talking to ghosts in his head and things, um, the different people that come through his research, but there's, I definitely had some kind of connection with Aponte that day that I was like, okay, um, he became one of the like figureheads of like what I'm out here doing and what I'm doing it for. Um, Ursula de Jesus is another figure. Um, she's a 17th century, another Afro-Peruvian mystic Catholic. She lived at the same time as Martin de Porres. Um, and she has a diary um, where her conversations, her mystical conversations and visions with souls in purgatory. Uh, she's having visions of dead slaves from the convent coming to her and talking to her about the things that happened to them while they were alive. Uh, and it's, it's really, it's such a vivid account and she's such a real person in it because throughout the diary, she'll say things like, I'm so confused by these visions I'm having. And so you like, you get this sense of her as a real person in there too. And there's just something about her, her strength. We have a painting of her that I have hanging up on my office door because it's just, She's just a really powerful, powerful person uh, to engage. And and so some of these people, some of these enslaved Africans, the ones that I have names for, the ones that I don't have names for, they're my biggest inspirations. Um, Other than like scholars, living scholars, I've mentioned a few already that I think really, you know, the, the trajectory from Fanon to Spillers, including Winters, and then Moen, Christina Sharp, Jared Sexton, Frank Walderson. Um, oh, there's so many people I'm leaving out. I, 
that black studies tradition is just life. It's everything. It's because we weren't supposed to be here. We weren't supposed to be doing scholarship. We weren't supposed, you know. Mm-hmm. So that whole tradition is one where like every everyone's an ancestor mm-hmm. in some way who has like pushed open that space. Um, and then I guess Erica Badu and some of the like avant-gardeism in mm-hmm. like culture is another inspiration to me. Jimi Hendrix is an inspiration to me. Um, and I, I think these figures appeal to me because their blackness is like beyond thinking about whiteness. Mm-hmm. They're still yeah. black as black. And, but what they're doing, the, the, like the Afrofuturist kind of blackness mm-hmm. that they engage is, is a spiritual, mystical, trippy, in tri- you know, Jimmy's case, it's like psychedelic, but <laughs> it's very black. But it's a blackness that celebrates an you know, infinite horizon of possibilities of, you know, of becoming that whole tradition, the Afrofuturist tradition, the art futurist tradition of blackness is a big inspiration. And I see that tradition in its antecedents in like Ethiopian Coptic, uh, you know, like iconography and like the weaving, the fractal weaving patterns of Kente and just all kinds of like what we could call complex scientific and mathematic knowledge, but it's all aesthetic in Africa. It's pottery designs and, you know, weaving patterns and it's not science and medical tre- or science and math treatises. Um, that is a consciousness. That's a knowledge that there, there are some epistemologies. There's some you know, the Dogon people of Africa who were able to identify some stars and I forget what constellation, but oh. it, you know, it wasn't until 20th century science that European scientists were able to identify these stars. And yet the Dogon, their whole cosmology is based on these stars that are not visible without 20th century technological science. So yeah. I, I don't know what's going on, but Africa, <laughs> uh, Africa had something that's that anamnesis mm-hmm. there's there's some other paths of knowledge and i want to try to plug into them as much as possible the total solar eclipse that took place a couple weeks ago oh yeah i'm in the state of oregon um i'm on a fellowship at lewis and clark college in portland oregon and so i took the little hour drive south of here to get into that line of totality and that eclipse took place on the anniversary of Nat Turner's uh, rebellion. I yeah. saw that <laughs> online. Mm-hmm. And, oh my goodness. <laughs> and right, if you so you know, like, like the, the backstory of Nat Turner is that he had gotten the like the group, the first green light from the cosmos to to embark on that um, uprising by being witness to a February 1831 total solar eclipse. It was actually an annular solar eclipse. Uh, for the science people out there, it want to be really critical with me. <laughs> but <laughs> solar eclipse is just, it's almost just, it's not as spectacular as a total one, but it's its life-changing in its, of, in its own right. And so that that kind of, uh, there's an Afrofuturism there, right? Like yeah, looking to yeah. the stars, looking to the cosmos, drawing inspiration for very practical political matters from that basis. But I saw Erica Badu before that eclipse, the most recent one, not the, the Turner one, oh. <laughs> uh, I saw Erica Badu on Instagram making eclipse viewers 
right? With one of her own songs from one of her albums, Planetary, Penitentiary, I think, or it's the song and on from her Mama's Gun album playing where she's singing about eclipses and constellations and whatnot. So she had her own music and her own Instagram video as she's cutting out eclipse viewing boxes. And I was always... Uh, not always, but I had been thinking up before that eclipse. I wonder, because it was moving over predominantly white Trump areas, and I think The Atlantic had an article about this. Oh, but then yeah. it, it moved through Kansas City and environs, St. Louis, right over Nashville. And I'm thinking to myself, and right through South Carolina. And I'm just like, okay, there's a whole lot of Black people in that that vicinity of this. And I mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. wanted to know, and I was hoping that if I, and like if I had been in those areas and could have somehow like engaged this. I really think that black people engaging that science and like through the understanding of our own African scientific knowledge that is almost mystical in that we had it pre-science, pre-scientifically without the scientific method, like there was such an opportunity there to show and like, especially black kids who are coming of age in this political climate to get a glimpse of a much bigger reality, a reality that supersedes any of the, what seems trifling from that vantage point. Um, there, I, so yeah, there's so much I could say about that, but I think I took great encouragement that I saw Erica Badu was also paying attention to the sky uh, that day. Cause I was, and a hundred some 200 some years ago, so was Nat Turner. And I think black radicals generally um, have always had this mystic orientation to them because the mystic and the critical person both agree in this, that this world can't be all there is. There has Mm -hmm. to be something more. Even if we have to create that something more, there has to be something more because this ain't working right here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That was such a powerful statement. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I, I love what you were saying about just these various traces of mysticism and also this history of Africans having this connection and ability to see what was happening in the solar system without capital S science as we now conceive of it. Um, I'm very interested in that history also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For my last question, I'd just like to ask you, what advice would you share to fellow writers, uh, fellow intellectual creators, fellow academics who feel a connection to this epistemic unruliness that you were talking about? And they would like to bring that out a little bit more but aren't sure where to start. What advice would you give to that person? Hmm. I think if we, if you get ancestral, and I know that like, I'll, I'll try to flesh that out a little bit, but if you think ancestral, get a little ancestral um, and just kind of like sit on the question. So like, if you're wondering how to engage, say epistemic unruliness or disobedience, and you want to, you want to, open up epistemologies in your own thinking and writing or whatnot, I would start with just confronting the ancestors, 
thinking through, and maybe not directly the ancestors if that's not going to work for you, but just putting yourself, where do you place yourself? Where is your, your ground, you know? And, and like once you've defined the ground, I think, then you know how to walk on it in a different way. But it, it's going to start with really engaging the ground and where your ground is. And so being grounded in this way is not always going to be demonstrable immediately. It, it's not because some of this is like there are many a times where I've wanted to say things in scholarship or say things on campus. But saying them to my ancestors right, has just been the way to say it first, to mm. think through it first, to make sure I've sat through all the affects or something. And I, I, I'm trying to, I know it's, this answer is a little, it's a little un, undefined perhaps, but I have found more power in like creating my own way of proceeding because I feel like I'm being supported by a headwind or something, you know, and that mm. even if what I'm doing in the moment doesn't have the kind of immediate reactions or the immediate resonance that I was hoping for, there is a, a sense of like, again, like ancestral rightness and that like, at the end of the day and 500 years from now, I know that what I've done will always stand the test or what I've said stands the test. And, I, and so there's a, a, a kind of, I don't feel a need per se for people, living people to understand me. I'm okay with being a little cryptic sometimes. I'm okay with being a little Gnostic in my writing because it's not, I'm not going to engage the constant atmosphere of like translation and explanation mm -hmm. and over and over and over again, because at some point that becomes its own kind of epistemic violence. Um, mm -hmm. if there's the poetics of culture is a book um, that talks about opacity and that opacity is like where freedom lies because it's white knowledge that wants to keep translating what the other peoples of the world do, what black peoples think, or what's the, you know, in this kind of anthropological historical pursuit of knowledge, mm -hmm. we're always trying to break it down, break it down, break it down. But he writes for opacity. He writes for not being able to always understand. And, and so that, Embracing that kind of, uh, like, I'm freed from feeling like I need to have every point lined up rhetorically for you. Because in my heart, spirit and my ancestors know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And in some way, mm -hmm. they're the ones that I'm writing for. Wow. What you're saying is also making me think that there's also, in in the process of living and doing your work, um, in a manner that satisfies you internally and that speaks to your ancestors, you're also becoming an ancestor of the future and an ancestor for other people 
who can recover your work and continue to carry it forward, maybe with a deeper understanding than maybe a contemporary of yours might have potentially. Mm. That's powerful. And I don't know how I, I don't think I live up to that quite yet. Um, But it's certainly something that, yeah, this understanding of ancestors and like a kind of ancestor respect, awareness, veneration that comes out of an Afrocentric sense is as much looking forward as it is backwards because all ancestors were at once living people mm-hmm. and right, and all living people are heading towards the ancestral lands. Right. And so it constantly like the idea of Sankofa where you're looking yeah. back forward, it's this oscillation of the past moving into the future and, and like thinking about both of those times as important the future as well as the past. So I, it's definitely something that I would hope that at the end of my life, that there is some ancestral residues that I'm able to leave behind for others. Because I've certainly benefited from the ones that have been left behind for me. Yeah, me as well. Thank you so much again, James, for this incredible conversation. I, I feel like I have so much to chew on and I'm looking forward to keeping this conversation going. Same. Thank you so much. My My heart is full today. And that's a wrap. A huge thank you to James for making time for this conversation and sharing so many rich, heartfelt ideas to chew on. You can find James online at alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at ApontesGhost. That's A-P-O-N-T-E-S-G-H-O-S-T. If you enjoyed this episode, I invite you to connect with me online at wildmindcollective.com, where you can not only subscribe for updates, but you can also join the first iteration of an online community for inspired intellectuals eager to bring their work into the world from a place of balance and joy. I hope to see you there, and thanks for listening.